Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Human Nutrition and Lifestyle Podcast. Today on the podcast, I'd like to introduce to you Dr. Stephen Hussey. Uh, so, Dr. Stephen, if you just want to tell everybody who you are, where you're from, and, and what sort of things you kind of do. Yeah, so I'm a, I'm a chiropractor and functional medicine practitioner. Um, I, um, I, uh, you know, I, I, I've been practicing for about you know, 10 years or so. Um, and I, you know, I, in my chiropractic practice, I have a very kind of neuromuscular skeletal type practice where I treat, you know, back pain, neck pain, headaches, that kind of thing. Uh, but I also have a passion for health in general and, um, and heart disease specifically because of my own personal health journey. Um, and a lot of the conditions and ailments I had, um, as a child, um, and just kind of that health journey. So, um, you know, like on social media and stuff, I talk a lot about heart health and, and things like that. Um, and, uh, and, and yeah, you know, so people seem to like it. And I wrote this book called understanding the heart. And I wrote another book previously called the health evolution. And, um, and, and yeah, so that's just kind of what I do. I do, I do online health consulting, um, and, uh, just kind of, you know, following my passions. Tell us a little bit about your, your own health journey. Then you mentioned that you had a, a bit of a journey through time. So, uh, let's, uh, see what that's all about. Yeah. So, I mean, when I was a kid, um, I mean, the first sign, like when I was two years old, my dad noticed I was like wheezing and coughing and, and uh, I was eventually diagnosed with asthma and I had a lot of inflammatory conditions as a kid, um, everything from, you know, the asthma to um, allergies and, um, you know, I used to break out in chronic hives, had terrible irritable bowel syndrome, lots of inflammatory conditions and ultimately ended up with uh, being diagnosed with autoimmune type one diabetes where my body attacked itself or attacked the cells that make insulin. So I no longer make insulin, which is different than type two diabetes. Um, but, uh, so, cause in type two, you, you still make insulin, you're just resistant to it. Whereas in type one, you don't make insulin at all anymore. And so, you know, that, um, you know, that kind of threw my parents and I into the Western medical system, trying to rely on them for management of these conditions. And, um, you know, it, it, it was, it was exactly that it was managing the conditions rather than figuring out why they're there and, and what's causing them and, and, and they're getting rid of that. And so it wasn't until college when I started realizing that, you know, how I live my life and, and my different lifestyle had an effect on my ability to manage these things. And, and I'm happy to say that most all of them are, are gone, you know, um, all the inflammatory conditions I had, except for the type one diabetes, which is kind of like collateral damage from, from all that inflammation. Um, but yeah, so I started to figure out that the way I live my life directly impacted my ability to manage the conditions and, and my health. And so I found it interesting that no doctor ever really told me that they just, you know, told me to use medications or, um, you know, give myself more insulin, didn't matter what I ate and things like that. And so it kind of spawned this health journey for me, um, and figuring out, you know, what actually creates health. And a lot of what I found over the last 15 years has just been incredibly contrary to what, you know, the conventional wisdom is for, you know, what, what is necessary to create good health. And so, um, so, so yeah, I, you know, um, that's kind of been my journey and, and I've been to lots of different diets, lots of different lifestyle things, and ultimately, you know, found what I think works from an evolutionary perspective. And and here we are. So you said there that, um, you found the key to it, but it's so unfortunate that perhaps you had to find it by yourself because going mm. to uh, doctors and physicians and things like that, they, they may have, like you say, headed you straight down the medicine path with pills and, and medical advice and things like that, and, and not actually look to the simple thing that which is nutrition. So eventually you um, helped yourself by finding out that perhaps you ought to look at your nutrition and your lifestyle habits. Um, so how did you do that? Was there certain things that you came across that helped you in, in that respect? Or did you just try out loads of different things? Um, well, yeah, just to kind of add to what you're saying, like, yeah, when I was a kid, I remember getting a book, a little book that they gave me, the doctors gave me that listed, you know, pretty much every single fast food item there was and how many carbohydrates is in it. Because as a type one, that's all they told you to do. It's like, they didn't matter what you ate, just give yourself more insulin if you need it. Right. That was the, that was the approach. And so I just, I look back looking back at that, I was like, man, that's ridiculous. Um, so yeah, I guess that, you know, so in, in college, you know, I had a really good relationship with my pediatric endocrinologist. Um, I thought he was a really good person. I, you know, he was, he was in Western medicine. And I didn't know the difference at the time, but he was a really good person. And that kind of inspired me to be some sort of physician. And, um, and so, you know, I was, I was doing like pre-med stuff all the classes I need for pre-medical school and things. And, um, and I, I figured out that I wanted to major in health and wellness because I couldn't really apply all those biologies and chemistries and things to anything. It was just like, 
you know, letters moving around or, but when I applied it to health, I was like, oh, I can make sense of this. And I was doing much better in school whenever I could apply it to something and help me remember and, and want to learn things. And so I realized that I wasn't passionate about medicine. I was passionate about health and, and what created that. And medicine didn't necessarily equal health. Um, and so, um, so yeah, then I started, you know, in this majoring in health and wellness, I had all the pre-medical courses, all the sciences and everything, but I also had these courses that were telling me, Hey, nutrition, Hey, exercise, Hey, you know, different, different types of things, you know, and looking back on it, it was very, um, I guess it was a very abridged version of what I think causes health, but at least it was the mindset that was like, it's not just learning this biology and chemistry and, and kind of mastering the body. It was putting the body in the right environment. And so, you know, at that time in college, you know, I was just, it was, I was, you know, eating at the cafeteria and started analyzing the foods there. And I was just like, Hmm, maybe these aren't some of the best foods for me, but just trying to make healthier choices in general. And, and being a type one diabetic, it was obvious that, or it became very obvious to me that the lower carbohydrate that I ate, the easier it was to control my blood sugars. Um, and so that became kind of a thing for me. Um, and it was just kind of this trial and error thing. Cause I had no idea what I was doing at this time. It was just complete trial and error, like trying to figure things out. And, you know, you know, when I was 18, when I first started college, a doctor tried to put me on a blood pressure medication, not because I had high blood pressure, just because that's the standard of care for anybody who's type one diabetic, as long as I had been and they wanted to quote unquote, protect my kidneys, um, at that time. And then later, maybe when I was 22 or so, a doctor tried to put me on a statin drug just because that's the standard of care. And so I, I started to realize that their system was just, they only had one answer. You know, they had, they had, you know, all they had was a hammer. So everything looked like a nail. And so everything was prescribed, prescribed, prescribed. And, and when I asked them about other things, they just they didn't really have an answer for me. So I, I started to realize that I needed to figure that stuff out on my own. And that I wasn't going to get those answers from my, my doctor's. Um, and so that, that was just a, what it was, just a bunch of trial and error, um, of, of all different types of things. And, um, and it's just, you know, blossomed since then. And I've found so many different things that are necessary and so many different ins and outs of health that, you know, that, that baseline, uh, college education of a health and wellness degree just scratched the surface. It was all about diet and exercise. And it was, you know, uh, based on guidelines and things like that, which I think were wrong, but it got me thinking in a different way than, just manage it with medications yeah that's great that's how a lot of people start off is just trial and error and see what works best for them and you mentioned that you went low carb and it seemed to benefit you it seemed to help with mm. those type of things that you was eating so then i, I suppose and um, what happened was you went low carb and started to really look at what nutrients and what nutrition you was actually getting from foods rather than just energy or, or making sure that you was full so did you go down a path where you were starting to think okay, let's break down foods then and see which foods actually can give me the best bang for the buck, the best nutrition. Yeah, we actually did this little um, project in one of my classes when I was in college, um, this is undergrad, um, and um, where we went and we analyzed some of the food in the cafeteria. Cafeteria didn't like this project very much um, <laughs> because we would go and analyze it and we found like that it was really high in certain nutrients, but really low in other nutrients and um, and we just started to think about that, think about, you know, the food we were eating and what it was actually giving us and yeah, not just something to eat and fill yourself up, but like, are you getting everything you need? Um, and look at things from a nutrition standpoint. Now, I do think it's a bit dangerous to go that road sometimes because sometimes we can get too obsessed with different nutrients. Um, something I think that some people have uh, termed nutritionism or become obsessed with nutrients and then, and then you because that leads to a path of, oh, just take a bunch of supplements and you get enough nutrients. But really food is how we're, we're designed to get nutrients and how our body best absorbs it. But, um, but yeah, just learning about all the different things your body needs. Um, and then, you know, much later in my life, I came to, to step back and kind of, you know, have some humility about, about the body and about life in general and about how like we can't, we can't think that we can take these medications or even these supplements um, and, and that it's going to do the same thing as it would by eating a food. You know, we can't, we need to step back and realize that we're never going to figure out the entire complex biological ecosystem is the human body. And rather than try and figure that out and think we're going to master it and conquer it, we should, we should step back and say, okay, what have humans been doing for millions of years that allowed them to be successful? 
um, what do they need, you know, real whole foods, um, nature exposure, that kind of stuff, and 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 do that rather than being obsessed with all the the numbers and and all the different nutrients and and just eat the foods that give us those things regardless of the amounts and things like that. That's right. Yeah, I agree. I think people do sometimes break it down too much and and work mm. out what's in the food rather than actually seeing the food as one whole big mm. matrix of whatever is in that food. It's all together and it's all together for a reason um, to help us evolve. And, and like you say, we've been doing it over millennia as, as a species. And that's what that's what our body thrives on is real whole foods. You know, yes, you've got all the different kind of camps with the carnivore camp and paleos and ketos and all that kind of thing. But if you can get your general person on the street just to eat real whole foods, then the options for them are, are limitless. You know, so, so much now we've intervened and we've put chemicals in foods, things like seed oils and all sorts of mm. different kinds of sugars and refine things and process things in a ways that are not natural. And I think it's just because our human bodies don't know how to react when we eat these kind of things. We don't know how to process them. So that leads to chronic diseases and obesity and all sorts of different kinds of things. Maybe you can tell us some sort of things that you've noticed that now that we are starting to process a lot of foods, things that have crept in and are really infiltrating the food network. Yeah. So I guess one way to look at it is, you know, when you when you process a food down to its individual constituents, it tends to be not as good for us. Um, which is one of my arguments against supplements. Now, there are plenty of research articles and, and, and experiments that show that taking the supplement helps with this or that, you know, and that's that's true, but we shouldn't rely on supplements to, to, to tell us that kind of stuff, you know, so, or to give us that kind of effect. Um, we should try and get it from food. Um, but if we look at the foods in society, I think are the most problematic, it's the ones that are processed down to their individual constituents, like, so uh, like a vegetable oil, it's basically just pure energy in the form of polyunsaturated fat. Um, which people may be surprised to know is not the best fat for us. Um, saturated fat is better, um, but there's no nutrients in that. So it's just energy, right? And so um, same with like sugar, you know, it's, it's a process all the way down to just individual constituents, um, which is just high energy glucose. Um, and then you could even go the other route and say supplements are just, you know, purely one vitamin or another vitamin. It's just really processed down to individual constituents. And so that's just not the way that our body is designed to absorb things or to, to, um, to use them. And some of those supplements are even full of additives or they're not in the right form that our body should use because they're synthetically made in a lab. It's not like they're just taken out of a food, um, but they're synthetically made in a lab. So you have to think about it in that context because, um, you know, it, we want to eat a food that, so when our body says I'm hungry, it's, it's saying we need energy and we need nutrients. Okay. So energy can be in the form of fat or carbohydrate, um, or, or protein if you're in a starvation mode or whatever, but, um, that's usually not the case. Um, and it needs nutrients in the form of protein, vitamins, and minerals. And so you want to eat a food that satisfies all those things. Okay. So it's interesting to me that in nature, like in, in whole foods in nature, there's very few, if any, examples where there's natural foods that are high in um, both fats and carbohydrates. It's usually one or the other. Like fruit is high in carbohydrate, whereas steak is high in fat. Now, there's some carbohydrates in steak, there's some fat in, in fruit, um, but it's very small amounts. And the only food that I know of, like natural food that has both, is breast milk, um, which is exactly what's, I mean, when you look at what it's designed to do, it's fatten up a baby, give it tons of energy so it can grow when it's, when it's rapidly growing like that. So if we're eating foods that are both, are high in both of those, or we're eating meals that combine both of those things, high, high in glucose and high in fat, then that can be problematic for our body because it's just way too much energy. And also if you're eating foods that say like, like the vegetable oils or like, let's take a, cause you know, people don't usually eat just vegetable oil. They'll eat like a muffin or something like that. So a muffin is very high in fats, um, very high in carbohydrate and has almost no nutrients in it. And so your body can, can just keep eating that food because it's not getting the nutrients. So it never gets the satiation and trigger that it should. So we end up eating tons more energy because we didn't, we didn't give it the nutrients where if you look at a food like a steak, you know, there's plenty of protein, plenty of minerals. It's got one uh, primarily one energy source, which is fat. Um, that's the food that's going to trigger satiation. And we can all agree, I think, that it's very hard to overeat steak. 
at some point you're full where it's very easy to over it overeat things like um uh potato chips or or um or a muffin or things like that you can eat more and more of those because they never trigger satiation because you're not getting either the energy or the nutrients that's right yeah that's a key thing to say is that you can overeat and keep overeating and keep overeating high energy dense foods foods that are basically just full of energy whether it be polyunsaturated fats or sugars just full of those probably a mixture of both nowadays with the processed food market but it's, it's just so unlikely and, and you're not going to eat food that are high in nutrients nutrient dense food is foods that are high in nutrients because once your body's ticked off all the nutrients that it needs all the vitamins and all the minerals that it requires then like you say you feel satiated you feel full and you just cannot overeat you just cannot continue to eat but if you are continuing to eat energy 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 on top of it then it will never tick those boxes those vitamins and mineral boxes and it'll just continue to eat until it can try and tick those boxes but we all know what happens in that instance is you just get an overload of energy and then it's stored as fat and things like obesity and chronic disease end up at, at the end of it. Uh, so mm. you mentioned polyunsaturated fats there and saturated fats. People still think polyunsaturates are the healthiest kind of fat where you mentioned saturated fats are perhaps healthier and you do concentrate on the heart. So people would say, aren't polyunsaturates healthier for the heart? Could you let us into that world there? Yeah. So, I mean, if we want to go back and like look at the history of it, so, you know, back in the 50s in the United States, um, heart disease was rising and it was this growing concern, um, you know, after World War II, it, it started to rise and people were like, well, what's causing heart disease? And then President Eisenhower had a heart attack and it was all over the news and, and people were freaking out about it. And so people were looking for an answer of why this, what this new disease was and, and what was causing it. And so this one guy named Ansel Keys gave us an answer and he did this really, uh, I'd say, poorly, poorly done and low quality research uh, called epidemiology. And he basically took data from six or seven different countries and said, and, and looked at the data to see how much saturated fat they ate, uh, how much cholesterol they ate, and the rates of heart disease. And he found that in these six or seven countries that the more saturated fat or cholesterol people ate, uh, the more heart disease they had. Um, however, that's a form of research called epidemiology that um, can only show association. It cannot prove causation. Um, and so it's kind of like saying that if you're standing on the sidewalk and you see a traffic jam in front of you and you also see that it's cloudy, it's kind of like saying, oh, well, the clouds must have caused the traffic jam, which is something you just can't say. You can't prove that. Um, those types of studies are usually done to 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 um, establish association. So then you can do a clinical trial to test if that association is actually causative, but that's usually not done in nutrition research. So anyways, the other thing that he did was that there was data, there was that kind of data from 22 countries available at the time. And, um, and he used the six countries that gave him the correlation that he wanted. Uh, so he cherry picked the data. And later two other scientists repeated the experiment with all 22 countries available and they found no, no correlation to saturated fat and cholesterol intake and, and heart disease. And so um, it was based on pretty, really poor science. And actually, after that idea came out, they started heavily testing it with clinical trials. And uh, it's probably one of the most, um, you know, most heavily tested uh, theories in nutrition ever, um, because back then they, they spent the money on it. Um, but they did four or five or six um, around the studies around the world where they replaced saturated fat with unsaturated fat. And what they found is that the more unsaturated fat that people ate, the more disease they had. Um, so, and they, they were using things like vegetable oils and margarine and things like that. And so the more of those they ate, the more um, heart disease they had, the more all-cause mortality they had. And a lot of this research wasn't published directly or wasn't published um, in a timely way. Sometimes it was delayed publishing or published in a small journal, uh, things like that. They tried to hide this idea because the idea that unsaturated fats were better for you and that saturated fat was bad for you had already taken off. And there was a lot of money behind this idea, um, money from grain industries and sugar industries and pharmaceutical industries that wanted people to believe that the higher cholesterol they had, um, the, the higher the risk of heart disease, meaning they could give them a statin drug and lower it. So there was money to be made behind this theory and it was, it was heavily pushed. And they had their front man who was Ansel Keys um, and, and other scientists from, you know, um, Harvard School of, of Public Health and things like that. And so that's, what the, that's where this idea came from. Um, and 
and it it was not based on science. It was based on an ideology, um, and it was heavily financed uh, by by different uh, companies and, and industries. And so, when we look at the actual data, there's there's really no evidence whatsoever that higher cholesterol or increased saturated fat in the diet causes heart disease. Um, and and that's from studies that have been going on for years now, or that have been coming out for years now. And it was just kind of ignored because that wasn't didn't fit the mainstream theory. Um, so people need to understand that just because a study said something doesn't mean that we can rely on that study or rely on the methods of the study or rely uh, on the fact that, or maybe, maybe the study was funded by an industry that wants the study to have a particular outcome. And this is really going on. And there's a, there's a quote by uh, a lady named Marsha Engel, who was the editor-in-chief of, uh, um, I think it was the New England Journal of Medicine for 20 years. Um, she was the, the head editor there. And when she retired or when she quit or whatever, um, she, there's this quote that says that she, we can no longer trust the consensus coming from medical research because there's too much uh, industry you know, influence, uh, whether it's pharmaceutical or big food or whatever. And so, um, so that's kind of a long-winded explanation of why you know, saturated fat has never caused heart disease. It never will. It's actually the preferred fat for us because when we look at how the body metabolizes polyunsaturated fat, it actually, it, it can actually, um, it, I guess, influence or encourage the body to become insulin resistant. Um, and those, those, um, but we're not quite sure how it does that. Like if it happens in the metabolism or if it happens in the fact that they're very unstable fats, so they become very oxidized and, and cause a lot of inflammation and that inflammation causes insulin resistance but we know that those foods are not good for us. They're not natural foods. You got to think about it too. Like, you know, if, if I was, you know, living out in the woods and I killed an animal, um, I would be eating saturated fat directly from the animal. Whereas those vegetable oils, those polyunsaturated fats, um, at least in high quantities, there's some polyunsaturated fats in that animal, but those polyunsaturated fats that we're eating today don't exist in nature anywhere. You know, so there's no way that our bodies, you know, through evolutionary time could have ever gotten used to them. Um, so it makes more sense logically, but then scientifically, when we look at it, it doesn't, um, it doesn't do good things for our body to eat um, high amounts of polyunsaturated fats. We really, we need like a balance and the perfect balance is, you know, a whole food, a whole animal food. Um, they're going to have some polyunsaturated fats they are going to have saturated fats. And, um, and that's what we need to stick to is, is kind of that ancient wisdom of eat whole foods, eat natural foods, you know, and stop eating the processed junk that's coming out of the industry today. I think that's right. I, I think that uh, you hit the nail on the head by saying in, in high amounts, because um, yeah, sure, we would be getting some polyunsaturates from eating whole foods, you know, some uh, omega-3s from eating fish and uh, omega-6s from other sources. But you've got to realize that most of the nutrition from our ancestors, most of the fat was saturated fat. Yes. All right. There is polyunsaturated fat, but in there, but, but in nowadays nutrition, what tends to happen is it's flipped on its head. So most people will be in a lot more polyunsaturates than saturates. So that's what's causing the problem. Whereas we need to go back to our ancestral ways and try and flip it back get rid of all that processed food. That's where the polyunsaturates are high. So get rid of those, introduce those real whole foods, and then you can flip that ratio on its head and have more saturates in your diet than, than unsaturates. And, and, and there is always this war going on saying that, um, you know, you shouldn't have any linolenic acid, you shouldn't have anything like that in your diet. But you, like you mentioned, you are going to get those things from animals and, and from nuts and, and certain things that you eat. It's just keep that ratio low and make sure you try and if you if you're having lots of fats in your nutrition make sure you you try and prioritize your fats as, as, as saturated fats um but you did also mention cholesterol there and and people that's a scary word for some people to say oh no you know if i eat saturated fats i get high cholesterol um maybe you can break down cholesterol a little bit for us tell us about the the ldl to triglycerides and, and that sort of ratio um things that we need to concentrate on because a lot of people just put cholesterol under one big banner and don't really understand how it's broken down and understand how each part of cholesterol works within the body. Yeah. So people get like a cholesterol panel or a lipid panel. They're not really they're looking at the total cholesterol number, but then they're looking at um, lipoprotein particles that are carrying cholesterol in them, um, whether that's an LDL or an HDL, or there's other ones called VLDL or IDL or even chylomicron. So there's lots of different, these, these kind of um, buses or boats that are carrying cholesterol around as, as well as other things too. Um, 
and so you know with with cholesterol well interestingly when whenever back in like 1984 or something like that they, there was this committee that got together and just basically decide based on the evidence or based on whatever that if cholesterol was good or bad for us and they incorrectly decided that it was bad for us uh, for whatever reason um you know industry backing bad science that kind of stuff um and so once that happened, they put together these committees to go and educate doctors on how to help people lower cholesterol and why it was bad. And the pharmaceutical companies caught wind of this. And so they went and they heavily funded these committees and sponsored them and that kind of stuff. And they influenced the guidelines because at first they were saying, okay, cholesterol needs to be um, like total cholesterol or no, I mean, LDL cholesterol should be 250 or lower. That's what, that was the first recommendation. And then it became 200 and then it became 150 and then it became 100. And now it's supposed to be lower than hundred. <laughs> and which tells me we have no idea what cholesterol is supposed to be. Um, but it's, but it's been, you know, pushed down and down because the lower the recommendation for cholesterol is the more statin drugs can be prescribed, which is exactly what the pharmaceutical companies want. They want more drugs to be prescribed because that makes them more money. And so, um, so yeah, so, but when we're driving down, so your body uses cholesterol and LDL, you know, which is a, a boat for carrying of cholesterol and transport of cholesterol, your body uses those things for so many different things, um, for cellular communication, uh, for the making of hormones, uh, for, um, uh, you know, the, the padding of the brain, um, you know, other components of the brain. Um, it's literally used, for, I mean, for anti-inflammation, for, for can it be helpful for um, fighting infection, um, lots of different things. Um, so there's no way that this, your body is making, and your body makes cholesterol. Even if you didn't eat any, your body makes cholesterol. So there's no way that this thing your body's making that does all these different things in the body is also killing us. It makes no sense whatsoever. Um, and sometimes we do find some cholesterol in, you know, clogged in an artery or, or not really clogged in an artery, but um, the real component of atherosclerosis and hardening of the artery is clotting. It's when the body chooses to clot. And sometimes when the clot forms, some LDL ends up in there, some cholesterol ends up in there too, because that's just what happens when, when blood clots. Um, but it's not like there's this huge accumulation of cholesterol. When we look at, when we actually look at the components of what atherosclerosis is or hardening of the artery is, it's not this big fat accumulation of, of fats and cholesterol. It's clotting material, it's fibrin. Um, and it's sometimes it's calcium when, they, when that calcifies. So it really doesn't make sense. And if you look at the evidence that like, you know, all these years of, of aggressively treating high cholesterol with statin drugs. Um, when you look at if that's working or not, it's not, you know, it's, it's so we're that the main approach has been lower the cholesterol, but that's not preventing heart attacks. That's not preventing heart disease. It's just not, um, there's, there's studies that show that people who, um, are admitted to the hospital with heart attacks. When they look at this large group of people who are admitted to the hospital having heart attacks, um, they measure their cholesterol and it's normal. Um, like up to 50% of people, it's normal and 75% or no, 75% of people it was normal and 50% of people, it was optimal, um, their levels. So, you know, is this really what's driving heart disease? Uh, the answer is no, the real driver of heart disease is inflammation and oxidative stress. Um, and, um, and, uh, psychological stress is a huge one that people don't talk about a lot. Um, but it's, it's not the cholesterol. It doesn't make sense. Um, and uh, there's no like, there's no mechanism where cholesterol is just this evil thing that goes and infiltrates your artery um, on its own. There's always some other process before any of that can happen. That's the inflammation, the damage to the lining of the artery. Yeah, I agree. And, and I did hear once, uh, just going back to say that the LDL is always found in the atherosclerosis. It's, it's always found there. But I heard somebody once, can't remember who it was now, put it in terms of when you see a car accident or a crash on the motorway, there's always an ambulance or a cleanup team there um, and they're always found there, but you're never going to blame them for what's mm -hmm. actually happened for. And then that's kind of like with the cholesterol, it's always found there. It's always found at the, at the incident area, um, but it's not necessarily that, that that's caused it. Um, so are you actually saying then that we shouldn't be scared of high cholesterol? Is high cholesterol good for us? Should we have lots of cholesterol in our body? Well, there's association studies, which are just studies that show associations that don't prove causation, but there are association studies that show that the higher people's cholesterol is over their lifetime, the less uh, heart disease they have, the less cancer they have, the less infections they have, the higher cognitive abilities they have, the lowest all-cause mortality, you know, if people, or they have lower all-cause mortality than people with lower cholesterol. So 
it definitely seems like it helps us, at least associationally. We can't say that the higher cholesterol caused all those benefits, but you'd think that if it was so damaging to us, the people with higher cholesterol would have higher rates of disease. Um, at least we would see the association, you know, it wouldn't, again, that wouldn't mean that cholesterol caused those, that disease in those studies, but you would think we'd at least see an association if it was so causative and we don't, um, which is interesting. Uh, so, so yeah, I'm saying that things that are way more important to pay attention to uh, rather than cholesterol, because that's, the, that's the main problem with this cholesterol theory of heart disease is that it's distracting us from the real causes, from focusing on the real causes. Um, and, treating it uh, sometimes is actually causing those real causes because uh, statin drugs have been shown to cause insulin resistance. So, you know, I, I talk about the three, three imbalances of heart disease and they are having poor metabolic health. So that's insulin resistance. Um, you know, when your body is metabolizing foods in a way that harms you pretty much, it's inflammation and oxidative stress, which is when we get damage uh, to the body through inflammatory things. Like I talked about those vegetable oils, they become damaged pretty easily. Um, and then imbalance in the autonomic nervous system. So basically an inability to process stress in a healthy way um, is what I'd say. Like those are the three main drivers of heart disease and narrowly mind, narrow-mindedly focusing on a lipid panel or a cholesterol panel and saying, looking at that and saying, oh, your cholesterol is high. We need to give you a statin. Like that's a really reductionist way of thinking. Um, and it's not really, you know, addressing the root causes of disease um, because it, this is an opinion of mine, um, just making sure that's clear. But if you have high cholesterol, whether or not it's bad for you is entirely dependent on the rest of your blood work. Are you insulin resistant? Are you inflamed? And even then, I'm not sure that it would be bad for you. It may actually be helpful. But again, that's my personal opinion based on all the research I've looked at. Um, but but yeah, that's that's what I'm saying. Yeah, no, I totally agree with what you're saying. It's a marker. Um, it's a marker to look at, sure, but it's not the be all and the end all. You have to put it in the big picture of the person, of their whole lifestyle, of their whole nutrition, of whatever else is going on in their lives, and then you can perhaps use it as something to, to, to read into. But it's just one of those markers. And like you say, just to treat it on its own is just narrow-mindedness. <laughs> so mm. I think we need to take a step back and look at the, the whole picture. So you mentioned your three things there. Um, so how can people go away and think, well, um, Dr. Hussey says that I, I need to concentrate on these three things here. So how can they go away and make those three things better in their life what sort of things do they need to concentrate on so that they don't go away thinking oh no you know i'm down the track for heart disease here i need to change tracks i need to go in a different direction what sort of things can they do yeah so like with the first one achieving metabolic health i mean the simple one-liner is eat a whole foods diet right because there are lots of different types of diets um that can be whole food diets that can create metabolic health i personally think that we need to include animal foods um, and a fair amount of them. Um, I, I personally think that a higher fat diet is going to be better than a higher carbohydrate diet, even if it's a whole food carbohydrate diet. Um, and so I think that, you know, a whole foods diet, um, higher in animal foods, um, that's a little bit lower in carbohydrate. Doesn't mean you can have no carbohydrate, but lower in carbohydrate um, is going to achieve that metabolic health you're looking for. And it's going to be different for everybody. Some people are going to do better on a fully ketogenic diet. Some people are going to do better with more carbs, depending on their activity level. It just depends. So you got to find the diet that works for you. But the most important thing is eat whole foods, diligently avoid grains, vegetable oils, and processed sugars and added sugars and things like that. Um, the second one is the inflammation, oxidative stress. And they're kind of two different things, but they kind of you know do the same thing in the body. Um, but one way we can reduce those things is again, eat a whole foods diet um, and, and be conscious of how plant toxins may affect you because I don't think that plants are bad for us inherently. And I think that they provide a lot of nutrition. Um, but for some people, there's different plant toxins that can really affect us. And so just be cognizant of how those plant foods are causing inflammation in your body because they do, you know, the, the oxalates or the phytic acids or the lectins or whatever, they, they can be doing that. Um, and then, you know, looking into your life and um, you know, reducing your toxin exposure is a huge way to reduce inflammation and oxidative stress. So the, the five areas I tell people to look at as far as their toxin exposure is, is their diet, their water, their air, um, their cosmetics, and their cleaning products. Uh, those things are, are major um, uh, ways that we get exposed to these unnatural man-made chemicals and synthetic chemicals and things like that. So, you know, using 
the cleanest versions of those that you can um, and just really being conscious of how, how often you're exposed to those things and you're never going to avoid them all. So don't freak out about not being able to, but um, avoid the ones that you can. It's always going to help uh, that kind of stuff. And then, and then um, another, you know, big uh, cause of inflammation and oxidative stress in our body is psychological stress, which leads me right into the last imbalance, which is balance in our autonomic nervous system. And this one's not talked about as much because it's just, I guess it's a little bit harder to understand, um, but it's also just not, it's not, um, it's not this biochemical thing that we look at where we look at nutrition and pharmaceuticals There's very biochemical. You can look at different, you know, uh, molecules and things and how they interact, whereas this is more of a, um, a psychological thing. And so the autonomic nervous system is just a system of our body that's perceiving our environment and telling our body, like it's perceiving through our senses and telling our body, is this a safe or threatening environment? Um, and based on which one it is, our body interprets that uh, usually through our heart, our emotional state, um, and tells our body how to react. You know, do we need to run away from this threat? Do we need to fight it off? That kind of thing. Or is it okay? Can we eat a meal? Can we go to sleep? Can we digest or, or detox or whatever we need to do? Are we in that state? And so we're supposed to have balance between these two states. Like there's never, like if we have a stress response, we're supposed to healthily be able to have that stress response and then return to normal. Um, and unfortunately in today's world, you know, with humans having the big brains that they have, we tend to think our way into stress responses. Even if it's not a life-threatening thing happening to us, we can interpret it as life-threatening. Um, and, and that can leave us in this state where we get too much of a stress response signal all the time. And that can inhibit the non-stress response that's supposed to be balancing it out. We can get stuck. Um, where we get this, um, it's not like we're stuck in one state or the other, but we're getting too much stress signaling and that can cause an imbalance in, in our, um, autonomic nervous system and things like messing up your circadian rhythm can do that. Um, you know, um, incorrectly thinking we're in a life-threatening situation when we're not, um, things like that, but also just the wrong light environment, uh, the wrong foods, um, lots of different things can signal to your body that we're in the stress state, leaving you in that that perpetual um, stress um, uh, physiology. And that's not what we want. That's going to create a balance. So then you want to do things like, you know, things that have been proven to balance out the autonomic nervous system, which is like eating the right foods or positive social relationships or nature exposure, the right type of light uh, and grounding. And um, there's so many different things that have been shown to, to cause balance in the autonomic nervous system. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's a large one that's, that's overlooked a lot of the time, um, but also things like meditation or gratitude journaling or whatever, you know, those types of things um, kind of give you that peace of mind that calms your nervous system, breathing exercises, lots of different stuff um, that can do it. So that's the three imbalances. And that's kind of the, the general idea of what people can do, but it's, it's a whole lifestyle change. It's not just, oh, I'm going to you know, be more active and eat a little bit better. You know, it's, it's really, if you want, you know, vibrant health that keeps you going and, um, and uh, doing what you need to do, it's, it's a, it's a whole lifestyle change. Yeah, that's great. I'm going to touch on the last one because obviously uh, the first two, you know, eat a whole foods kind of nutrition and prioritize those animal foods. That's what I shout from the buildings all the time, you know, <laughs> prioritize the animal foods. Cause as we said earlier, that's where lots of the nutrients are, lots of the vitamins and minerals are. And if you're looking to get full and looking to get the best bang for your buck look at animal foods especially organ meats and, and things like that so if you're prioritizing them and getting the whole foods as well i'm like you i'm not against plants but i do think that they can cause people a lot of problems and you don't get as many nutrients you don't get as many vitamins and minerals from them because they do have the chemicals to try and stop that absorption um, within your body whereas um, animal produce doesn't tend to have that so if you can if you can nail that down for those first two points that you said there then, then great but the last one um i have talked about chronic stress before which is kind of like what you're saying you know if your whole life is one big stress and um, then it doesn't matter what your nutrition is your lifestyle is still gonna gonna suffer and, and you're probably not going to be able to nail down that nutrition as a result so would mm. you agree then that things that you could add into your lifestyle certain things like acute stressors would would help you be able to battle the chronic stress that you're going through perhaps you're having problems at work at home you know on a daily basis with kids or whatever there's all sorts of things going on in people's lives so could they introduce little acute stressors maybe maybe nutritionally like fasting or um, cold showers perhaps things like that yeah so ultimately 
you know, I, I define health as the ability of the body to adapt, you know? So if you're, and that's, that's the problem with, with a kind of general Westernized society today is that we don't really force our bodies to adapt to anything. You know, we, we don't do, you know, you know, relatively intense exercise that makes your body adapt to that activity and then come back to normal. We, we stay in, you know, the same temperature. We try and control that temperature for the most part all day long. You know, you go from your home that's controlled temperature to your job that's a controlled temperature. Um, we're underneath the, the wrong sources of light. So we're staying under the same, you know, filtered light uh, that, that everything. So it's, it's making your body, I mean, and that's, that's kind of like what we've done as a society, as humans. We've taken away those those more difficult parts of life, you know, having to withstand the weather or the, or the temperature or, um, you know, uh, starve sometimes, you know, cause we couldn't find food. And, but unfortunately, well, maybe fortunately, or unfortunately, depending on how you look at it, those things help shape our physiology. And so our physiology got really good at being healthy in those situations. So it turns out when we look at you know, going back to those things and, and, and kind of recreating those within a Westernized society, it's really beneficial to us. So like you're saying, like, sometimes it's better not to eat. We can give your body kind of a hormetic stress, this, this thing that helps it become stronger, right? Because when we don't eat, it gets us into that, um, uh, that making ketones, that metabolically healthy state, or we could take cold showers, like you're talking about, because that's getting our body used to different temperatures, um, so that we can become more resilient to that stress, um, rather than making it so easy for our bodies the entire time we do things that are hard or do things that are maybe slightly uncomfortable to train your body, to be resilient to that stress. And yes, in turn, like you're talking about it, when we do those things, a lot of those things that help creates balance in our autonomic nervous system, because we're not just, we're, you know, we're, we're creating that resilience to the stress. Our body is is um, able to handle those stresses and then come back to normal. That's, that's health. So like, you know, if similarly, like with, with type two diabetes, like if I eat a carbohydrate meal, my body should be able to have that response and then respond to it and bring it right back down within two hours. Type two diabetes is the ability, inability to respond to that, the inability to adapt to that. And you have that blood sugar rise and then it doesn't come back down because you're insulin resistant. So you've lost the ability to adapt to that meal and you're unhealthy now, right? So um, we have to look at it in that sense and do things that may be difficult, may not be enjoyable, but make us more resilient and healthier down the road. Yeah, brilliant. And and keep them acute, keep them as mm. acute stressors. You know, don't fall into the trap where lots of people start on keto and think fasting is the holy grail and then fast every day, all the mm. time, as much as they can. And then you're pushing it into a chronic stress and then you're making your body do it all the time. And then it doesn't become something that's acute that like, like you described that you can do it and then come back to normal. Cause that's what you want. You want to be able to do it and come back to normal, not constantly do it all the time. So that's great. And uh, I did notice that you've got, I follow you on Instagram and I follow you everywhere and we'll tell everybody where they can follow you in a moment. I noticed that you've got a book out. So I'm interested mm. in the book. So tell us a little bit about what, what's in that book and um, where people can get hold of it. Yeah. So my latest book is called Understanding the Heart. It came out in April. Um, I think it came out in the UK uh, in June or something like that. But um, but yeah, it's just, you know, all my findings on on heart disease, since I've been looking into it for a long time, since as a type one, I'm, I'm heavily predisposed to heart disease. So um, yeah, I, I've been looking at that for a while. And a lot of what I found is very contrary to you know, what, you know, was believed about heart disease. And my biggest goal in the book was to try and, you know, not to not disregard diet um, and exercise and cholesterol and everything like that, but it just seems to dominate the conversation about heart disease. And we need to get away from that because it's about much more than that. So my, my main goal in the book was to open people's minds to all the different causes and things that can contribute to heart disease. Um, so things about like, um, you know, how healthy is your mouth? How's your dental health? Uh, that's really big. That's really important for all disease really, but heart disease as well. Um, you know, looking at the things we talked about, like the right environments, um, the toxin exposures, all these different things. It's not just, are you exercising and eating the right diet or whatever, even though the diet chapter of the book is probably the biggest chapter because there's so much about it. Um, but, but still, you know, so in the beginning of the book, I go into like, you know, the evolution of some of these imbalances 
that have happened in the modern day. So like, and I go all the way back to like the first multicellular organisms and some of the things that formed during that time that are still present in us today that tell us about why we have imbalances based on the lifestyle we live today. And I talk about the origins of our stress responses, mammals. And I talk about, um, I talk about the, you know, the diet of, of the first modern humans and, and what that was like and, and why that's important for us to know. And then I talk about things like how it's believed that the heart is this pressure propulsion pump that pumps the blood throughout the body, but that's not what it is. And that's not what it does. And there's lots of evidence and research showing that that's not the case. And to understand that is really important for things like heart failure. And I talk about, you know, how heart attacks can happen with no blockage whatsoever. Um, and I talk about, because that, that can happen, it has to do with the autonomic nervous system. And I talk about, you know, why cancer of the heart is so rare, because it is one of the absolute rarest sites of cancer. Um, why is that? Uh, and then there's certain characteristics of the heart that, um, that, uh, that give it that, uh, that resilience to cancer. And I talk about diet, and I talk about um, you know, the three different imbalances we've talked about and how we can, how we can, um, make those imbalances balanced. Um, I talk about dental health and, and heart health. I talk about, um, the, the markers we should track. I talk about chiropractic and heart health because I am a chiropractor. And then I kind of finish up with, you know, my thoughts on, on testing and how we should view health in general. Um, and what's a good philosophical approach to health rather than just a, a, um, a very biometric, I guess, approach to health. We should look at it as a philosophical thing too. So I give my thoughts on that at the end. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's, um, it's out now. You can, people can get it on Amazon or they can order it from the publisher, which is Chelsea Green Publishing. Um, uh, it's in various places. Um, so, so yeah. Yeah, that sounds great. I'm going to have to go and, and get that, get that book. <laughs> but, but you talked about um, the, that uh, your heart is not necessarily the pump that everybody thinks it is. And I did fall into that trap because I realized that I do a lot of uh, endurance exercise. So I'm there thinking, yeah, my heart's the main thing. I have to strengthen my heart. My heart's the pump that's pumping everything around. So enlighten us into why that's not necessarily the case. Yeah. So um, the heart is, if you look at the size of the heart and its ability to, or the force that it can create, there's no way that it could, it could produce enough force, enough um, um or that it has enough energy to for to, to pump the blood forcefully throughout the entire body the physics of it just doesn't make sense um like when you look at the hydrodynamics of it it just doesn't make sense and so um and even the early researchers on the cardiovascular system were saying this kind of stuff um they were saying like there's no way that the heart could do this we need we need a heart the size of a whale's heart to be able to do that and so there are other mechanisms by which blood moves throughout the body um one of them is just movement in general like when we move our bodies blood gets going um and there's like, you know, one-way valves in the veins that keep it from backflowing and things like that. But more or less, like the, the, the blood is actually moving more or less on its own because of mechanisms of water. So water can hold energy and it forms this structured water, they call it, on the lining of an artery. And that, that creates an energy gradient that propels blood flow. And this has been proven over and over again in, in the lab of Dr. Gerald Pollock at the University of Washington. Um, they've shown this um, in chicken embryos and other living things. Um, and so, you know, when the blood's moving on its own, the heart doesn't need to be forcefully pumping it anywhere. The heart is contracting um, and it's, it's contracting and it does do a little bit of pumping, but mo no more than enough is to get the blood through the chambers of the heart. Um, there's no way that, you know, past the, the, the main aorta after the heart that, that the heart's doing much moving of the blood. But, um, but yeah, so when we look at it that way, it's, it's similar more, it's more similar to what's called a hydraulic ram. Um, which is something in engineering that is activated by flow. So fluid is flowing into it and that, you know, allows the hydraulic ram to do what it's supposed to do of moving, moving fluid somewhere. Um, and so it's really important that we understand this and that we, we start looking at this more because when we look at something like heart failure, um, it's blamed on the heart. Oh, the heart is not quote unquote pumping like it's supposed to, Right. Um, but in reality, it's a breakdown of other mechanisms. It's either poor metabolism of the heart or it's a breakdown of these other mechanisms that blood is supposed to be moving, which is forcing the heart to do more quote unquote pumping than it's supposed to, right? And so that's leading to these, the, the heart really struggling, uh, changing its shape, uh, fluid accumulating in certain areas of the body. And that's what we call congestive heart failure. Um, but it's really important that we understand that the heart is not this pressure propulsion pump so that we know how to treat it. And so for me, the main thing that confirms this whole theory is that when we look at 
one of the best ways that water gets energized and creates blood flow in the body is through infrared light exposure. And when you look at the studies for infrared sauna use and heart failure, it's just phenomenal. Like people who are in these studies, like it's just, they, they get so much better. Sometimes their heart failure even goes away uh, when we do this. And so that confirms it for me. Like this is, this is the, this is the mechanism by which it's happening. The heart's not really, you know, supposed to be pumping the blood. And so I talk about that a lot in the book, but um, yeah. So, and, and there's just, there's tons of evidence, but it's not very profitable to have infrared saunas everywhere or, or to talk about those things um, when it comes to heart failure. So Western medicine is not as interested, but yeah. You could, uh, you could get the same thing from lots of sunshine, you know, get outside, mm -hmm. yeah. um, get sunshine, you know, um, the sun has been um, demonized over the years. So you need to cover up, you need all sorts of sunscreen and you need hats and coats and whatever, but you know, you get the sun to touch your skin and it can do marvelous things. It's what it's, what it's done again. If you go back through human history, was always in the sun. The sunlight was uh, worshipped by lots of ancient tribes and, and cultures and, and for good reasons. Um, so in, in terms of uh, what you're saying about the heart, I just want to break it down for people um, listening that, that perhaps just got lost a little bit there. Um, <laughs> when I first found out about it all, it's, you know, it can get a bit mind-boggling. So I kind of broke it down as in terms of the heart's a regulator. You know, the mm. system's working, your blood's going around your system, especially during exercise, and your heart kind of acts as something which keeps everything together, keeps it um, so that it doesn't go out of hand. It regulates how your blood's flowing around the body. Is that something that you would say? Yeah, there's actually studies I talk about in the book where they look at endurance athletes. Uh, in this study, it was soccer players, um, uh, where um, they did, what they found is that when people get like an enlargement of the heart muscle because of an endurance athlete, it's not because the heart is forcefully pumping more. It's because it's actually stopping the flow of blood more. It's it's more it's getting stronger to stop the flow of blood because when you're exercising, the flow increases quite a bit. That's because tissue demand for blood is is driving that flow. And so if if you were to start exercising um, and there was no heart there, all the blood would flow over to the arterial side to deliver oxygen and nutrients to the tissues, and the venous side would would collapse, which is not a good thing because we would <laughs> die. Right. So the heart is actually there stopping the flow of blood to maintain pressure between the two systems. Um, uh, at least that's what seems to be evident. So in people who do a lot of insurance endurance exercise, um, it's actually the heart is enlarged because it's more effective at stopping the stronger at stopping the flow of blood when it's coming forcefully into uh, the ventricles and the atria like that, um, which is pretty fascinating um, that there's studies like that that actually show that. Yeah, absolutely fascinating. And there will be People uh, similar to myself, endurance athletes, listening to this, uh, learning something new. So that's great. And uh, yeah. they can go out and buy your book and, and, and learn even more. But tell everybody where they can follow along with you and, and join in the things that you're doing. Yeah. So my website is resourcerhealth.com. Uh, and that's where I have my books are on there. But my, my blog is on there and um, my health coaching is on there. Um, but also I'm on social media, um, Instagram, Facebook and Twitter and things like that. Just uh, Dr. Stephen Hussey, Stephen with a Ph. Um, and they can find me there. They can contact me there and, and uh, look at what I'm up to and, and the information I put out there. That's great. Thank you for talking to us today, Stephen. It's been great. Yeah, thanks for having me.